citation will be from Philippians 1. It goes like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Philippi in Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until, until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, for I have you in my heart. For whether I am defending the gospel, or whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, please do something with us that we could not ever dream to do for ourselves. Create, renew, refresh, gladden, refurbish, enlighten. Make us to see, make us to hear, make us to respond with the kind of joy that the apostle seemed to know even as his world was falling apart. Come into our worlds, individually and corporately, and do for us exceedingly, abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. We invite you now, come Holy Spirit, be our guest. Come Holy Spirit, be our guest. Amen. We're starting a new series here at the end of Easter, in the beginning of what the church calendar calls Eastertide. And we've titled this series, Give Them Heaven, which is, you know, weird. But it's an homage to Dallas Willard, who recently passed away about a year ago. A graduate of Tennessee Temple University, which is sadly no more, or merging with another school in North Carolina, but they never put that on the back of jacket covers on his books. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, wrote many great devotional books, Christian living type books, and many people have been inspired by his teaching. A man of great humility, a great learning. And I have a book, a kind of, they call a feshrift, a kind of homage to him and essays about his life. But it's more popular than an academic version of this. And in one of the essays, his granddaughter, I think her name is Larissa, writes about her grandfather, not the, the professor whom she hoped to study with at the University of Southern California, but the grandfather who called her granddaughter. The one who would go out and wave and stand and wave until she was fully out of sight. The one 
who always acted so happy with her and so silly with her. And she said, before his last surgery, I was set to go sing with a choral group to a homeless shelter. And I was leaving the room, and he called me back over, and it was just him and me in the room. He was about to have surgery. And he looked at me, and he said, Larissa, go give him heaven. And she said, he always said silly things like that, that wound up being profound. And as I thought about it, I thought, that's exactly what I want to do and am called to do. Go give him heaven. And so it's a silly title for a sermon series, but I think it gives us a little handle to think about the reality of the world being a different place now that a new creation has begun. God's future, where people were going to be raised from the dead, started 2,000 years ago to the great dismay and surprise of many. So the future has started now. And for 2,000 years, a new creation has been being built, easy for me to say, at the same time as this other one goes on. And it's a matter of learning to live into it, believing that it is a reality that we can be animated with heaven's gifts for the sake of the world. This is not a sermon series about creating utopia or some thought that we are actually going to be able to build all the, the wonders and the magnificences of heaven here on this earth. But it is a corollary to this idea that we pray and we have been taught to pray, thy kingdom come. The political administration, the emperorship of Jesus come on the earth where what's done in heaven is done here. Because this is what the world needs. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to use the book of Philippians to talk about it in very practical ways, how we can give the world heaven or how heaven can be with its values, with its wonder, with its enticements, with its healing, with its different look, how it can be brokered through us by the one who now reigns in heaven as the great king of the earth. The apostle tells the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven, but they live in this colony of earth. They're a heaven's colony on the earth. Just like Philippi was a colony of Rome where people had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, but they lived in what's now northern Greece. And so, we're going to look at this idea of giving them heaven. And as I was thinking about this book, and a lot of you probably like the book of Philippians. I preached on it many years ago, I think. I think I've misunderstood something until recently. I thought this was kind of the happy, clappy book of the New Testament. It's got a lot of rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful always. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. It is a safeguard for you. I will rejoice, and I'm going to rejoice. Paul, talking about rejoicing all the time, talking about all this joy that he's got. And I always thought of this as just like his, you know, maybe like his Prozac book. Isn't it amazing that Paul's so joyful and excited while he's in jail? Man, I'm not like that. But as I was reading a professor of mine, I started realizing, putting pieces together, that what we may be seeing here is a man fighting for this very joy, which makes it make a lot more sense to us. This is a man who's in prison, in chains, 
It wasn't a kind of prison where he had cable TV and he could watch the NFL game of the week. His friends had to come bring him food. In fact, that's why he's writing this letter, a kind of joy-soaked thank you letter, much better than any bride has ever written after getting nice toaster ovens and flatware. But he is writing a thank you to these Philippians because they've shown concern about him while he's languishing in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if it will prove successful, these assassination attempts that the Jews have been plotting against him. He doesn't know if he's going to go and stand trial and Caesar's going to condemn him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He says things. Like I have enemies out there who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, hoping they can stir up trouble for me. He's being assaulted. He's in jail, languishing. He's thin on support. He may be thin on hope. He even at one point says, it would be better if I died. Because then I would get to be with Jesus. That's not the talk of a joyful man. That's the talk of a struggling man. Ah, It would just be better if I could just... It's so hard here. If I could just be done and could be with Jesus, which is far better. Far better. But I'm convinced that I'll stay for your joy and your progress in the faith. He's fighting for joy and he's choosing to rejoice And I think it's a nice resource for us if you find yourself dealing with conflicts, thin support, some kind of sadness, life not being the way you wish it were, you not having the freedom to do what you wish you could do. This is a good book for you. A good book for us. I've been watching a series called Jock Taylor. He's an Irish detective. He's hardened as they all are. He has a drinking problem as they all do. He's phenomenally courageous and uncannily wise as is typical. But his mem has had a stroke. And a man comes to him, his partner, and says, Jack, do you want to talk? I'm sorry about your mom. Do you want to talk about it? And he says, Cody, I am an Irish male. I have only one coping mechanism repression. In other words, I'll just drink it away and not talk about it. If I drink enough whiskey, it'll all go away. I'm sure of this. I'm an Irish male. Now, if you're an Irish male, that's what he said. I'm not corroborating it. But this is not Paul doing that. This is not him somehow saying, life is really stinky, but I'm going to pretend like it's not. We're going to see that he's actually got some kind of resource that is better, a better coping mechanism than repression that Jack Taylor has to employ. And it's better even than whiskey. The big idea is going to be this. We see, as he prays in this opening part, we see the Apostle Paul giving an aspiration and a prayer for insightful love of those who belong to Jesus. An aspiration and a prayer for insightful love for those who belong to Jesus. See, the Apostle knows something here, and that's why he prays, showing us his theology You know, it's been said by someone, if you want to know what someone really believes, don't listen to their doctrine. Listen to them pray. 
Do you realize this? If you pray, that's how you talk to God. And when you talk to him, that's what you, that's the place where you reveal what you really think about him. If you don't expect him to do much, if you don't think he's very nice, if you don't think he likes you very much, you'll talk to him seldom. You will talk to him in a rather impersonal and formal way, like you don't talk to anybody else. You'll use a lot of words that don't ever enter your vocabulary any other time. Father, we beseech you to bless us herewith and therefore, as if you've become suddenly a Puritan lawyer writing up a brief. But the apostle starts out with prayer. Here I am, a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all the saints in Philippi at Christ Jesus with the officers of the church, the elders and the deacons. And I'm offering grace and peace in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time I think about you, I pray. I give thanks to God for what he's brought into my life because of you. He's interacting with God, looking what God has done. God started something. He's going to continue it, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on. He's not going to grow weary on you. He's not going to wear out. His steam is not going to dissipate in his renovation project of your lives. I've got this deep affection for you that I know you share because you've sent money to me and you're not that rich. And you've taken great trouble to fuss over me by sending me Epaphroditus to encourage me. And then he starts this prayer. He says, and he shows his theology. He shows what he thinks is really important for your life. He says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. His prayer is that their love may abound more and more. Now, this is an insightful prayer for insightful love. One is because everybody can look around the world right now and probably hum along to the tomb first recorded by Jackie DeShannon. You were probably listening to her on Spotify this morning. You're like, what? Spotify, Jackie DeShannon, listening. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of, she said, and then Dionne Warwick said the same later. But you see, it's theologically imprecise to say what the world needs now is love, sweet love, because the world is full of love. You realize this? It's just misdirected. Every person in this room, every person on this mountain, every person in this city is a masterful lover. The problem is, is that their love is mostly self-directed. They love them some them. As a plural Terrell Owens would have said, I love me some me. And that's what's indigenous to the human heart. That's what the world has plenty of. There's all kinds of people loving them some them. There's all kinds of people who go out to work in the morning and they're thinking only of how can I supply for me and mine. I don't care about anybody else out there. There's all kinds of people who are evaluating what happens in the world based purely, not on the benefit it confers to other people, but on the perceived insult it is to them. We do it all the time. There's plenty of love in the world, but it's wrongly directed. So Paul is calling for a Jesus kind of love, an insightful kind of love. 
that would become the tune in your head. Let insightful love get stuck in your head. This idea of insightful love. This week I wrote a little song of a retiring professor friend who is soon to lay down his duties at the seminary. And he's very dear to us, Scott Jones and me, and several of our friends. And so I wrote this poem about this man who's the most eccentric, eclectic, theological samurai wizard I've ever met. He's very bizarre and fantastic. We love him very much, but he's uncategorizable. He's somebody you would think was trying to throw them off the tracks if he was on Facebook and people were trying to figure out how to advertise to him, how to tailor his wants and desires. You wouldn't be able to do it. They'd think, this must be 40 men. So I wrote this, this song. And I put it to the tune of, these are a few of my favorite things. And I recorded it, and I sent it out to our friends, and we're going to share it with the professor later. And I heard Kathy the other day, after she had heard me in a short amount of time, I composed this, but also in a short amount of time, I was continuing to try to make the meter matter, to make the rhythm line up. So I was constantly trying to figure out where to put stresses on certain syllables or syllables, as our former president used to say. And so repeatedly, I was... And I just kept doing that over and over again because I was trying to make the words fit. Eventually, I quasi-succeeded, but not before I damaged my wife. Because she was doing dishes and she was going... And we were doing it. She said, you're going to make all our friends be humming this all day long. It's going to be stuck in their heads. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) But that's what happens. You want certain things to be stuck in your head and not other things. I would urge you today to let this prayer of the Apostle Paul be stuck in your head this week as a, a song that you can't shake. Make it a prayer that you pray for your children, for your spouse, for your coworkers, for people who irritate the fire out of you, for yourself. This is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. If you're looking for a place to start memorizing, try this, these few verses. Philippians 1, colon, 9, hyphen, 11. I think I do Siri a lot. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Comma, smiley face, new face. New, New sentence, all caps. Sorry. Some of you have gotten text messages from me. I'm good at it. Siri and I have an interesting relationship. Okay. She doesn't listen to me well, though, and she makes a lot of mistakes. Learn this verse. Make it part of your prayer and aspiration. Let it be a song that gets stuck in your head. And now let's think about this. So let this tune get stuck in your head about insightful love, a love that gets on everything. That's what Paul means when he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in depth of insight, more and more knowledge in depth of insight. What does abound mean? We don't talk like that very often. But I think you can get an idea of it if you think about when something is abounding, it's full of it. It's teeming with it. You could say this, Chattanooga in the springtime is a Bounding with pollen. 
It coats your lungs. It haunts your dreams. It spray paints your car. It impairs your vision. It makes even meth heads wish they could convert the meth back to Sudafed. I read that somewhere. I thought that's pretty good. I thought that's pretty good. But the pollen stains and affects everything. It's on everything. You can't avoid it. If you're allergic, good luck. You're going to be in a coma for a month. The pollen, the world is abounding with pollen where we live. Okay, so that's a negative example. And you think, though, this is what Paul's praying. Just like Jesus said to his disciples, you know how the world's going to know that you really follow me? It's by showing love, demonstrable love. Not self-directed love, love that washes other people's feet. Love that's concerned to bless others. That's concerned about the flourishing of others. Of course, it'll always wind up being replenishing to you. When you give yourself away, you'll find it. Paul is just following on that theme. He prays in other places that their love may grow and increase for each other and for everyone else. He's always praying for an increase of love. He knows this is what has to happen. This is the stuff that heaven's filled with. Faith, you won't need that in heaven. Knowledge that we have now, it's impartial. Love is going to continue. This is what the air of heaven is like, where people are not concerned about themselves. They're forgetful of themselves. And so there's great concord, great accord, great joy, great giving, great sharing, great warmth. And we're the little colony of heaven that's supposed to be abounding in this. And so he says, like we would say about pollen, it gets on everything. He would say, let your love get on everything in your life. So let that be the soundtrack of your life. Let the love of Jesus Christ get on everything. That's an aspiration. Of course, it's not happening in your life all the time, but it's happening some. But it's something you can wake up in the morning and make your aspiration. Let your love get on everything. You wake up in the morning... You think about your job, you think about a meeting you've got, you think about a sales call you've got to make, you think about a lesson plan you've got to prepare and kids you've got to teach, patients you've got to see, a house you've got to build, to pray and to aspire that God would let you be so permeated in mind and ears and speech and body and heart that you're, you would be a vessel that is getting the love of Jesus stained on everything that you touch. You go to work and you're not just thinking about, or am I being treated well? You're starting to think about, how are my employees being treated? You're not just thinking about, how are other people loving me? You're thinking about, how am I blessing them? How am I enriching their lives? Let your love get on everything. Let this be, this insightful love, be a soundtrack of your life. And then, think of your life as a, as a dance. Because, you know, I'm a dancer, you can tell from looking at me. I'm not a dancer. Sorry, Kathy. <laughs> Kathy is, though. Four steps for an insightful waltz of love. If you're going to let your love get on everything, this is the soundtrack, and then here's the movement that accompanies it. You've got to think, you've got to thank, you've got to listen, you've got to act. Think, thank, listen, act. Think, thank, listen, act. This is the four steps. And if you're really like me and dancing, one, two, 
Three, think, thank, listen, act. The apostle prays that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You know, when you have this kind of love that starts to stain everything about your life and it gets on everything in your life, all your relationships, all your work, one of the things you'll start doing is you'll start thinking about, you'll start having insight into how you can demonstrate love to other people in ways that they can receive it. The other thing that you'll start realizing is if you are the recipient of love, like Paul is demonstrating here in his opening lines, when he says, I am confident of this, the God who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. You start to realize as you think about the love of God that has started renovation projects and all the people you know, God's at work. You start to think about that. And you start to be let off the hook to think that it is your responsibility to fashion other people in your image or according to your plans. This is especially hard for parents because you do have a responsibility to shape and nurture and guide and nudge, but to have the freedom to know that everybody you're around is a potential person in whom God is at work, a work that he started and he's going to finish. And so you can think about that when you approach people. God is already at work beforehand. When I get here, God is already at work. And I'm not the craftsman, as George MacDonald said. I may just be the chisel or some instrument in the craftsman's hands, but I'm certainly not the blueprint. I don't know what the people around me should be. Husbands, you don't know what your wife should be. Wives, you don't know what your husbands should be. But God does. If you let his love get on everything, you can entrust the work of building people up, nurturing them according to what he wants and not merely according to what you want. Think, knowledge, depth of insight. It also means that love, to love someone well, is far more active than, than just a virus that happens to you. That's the way a lot of people think about love, you know? You get bit by something, you got a love virus in you, like a bad mosquito bite, except it's pleasant for a while until it dissipates. But the idea that you would be thinking about, you'd grow in knowledge, you'd grow in insight, you'd be thinking about other people in love, and your love for them, means that it's, it's an activity that involves your whole person. It's not merely something that happens to you. You can choose to do it. You can think about what's good for them, not merely what's good for you. You have some choice in this matter. So the first step of these four steps of insightful love waltz is think. Second, thank. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. If you're going to start abounding in love. If this is going to be an aspiration, something you pray for, the life of Jesus is going to come streaming out of you. Here's a very practical way that you can be unseated from your place of preeminence in your own mind. Is you can thank God for other people. Well, that's easy to do if they please you. You can thank God for people that you don't like because he made them for some reason. You know the story, surely, about Corey Ten Boom. Maybe you heard this. I read this someplace. So she was in 
with her sister Betsy. They were put in this barrack in a prison camp during World War II that was infested with fleas. And they had read in their morning devotionals, they had this one Bible for this overcrowded space where too many people were, that they should give thanks in all circumstances for this was God's will for them in Jesus Christ. And so, Betsy, when they started being bitten and eaten and infested by these fleas, she said, oh Lord, show us how. Show us how to live with these fleas. And then suddenly remembered, we, he already did. He told us this morning, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So she started to say, Lord, thank you for these fleas. And Corey Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom said, Betsy, we can't thank God for fleas. You know, kind of like, God didn't mean for fleas. He didn't mean for cats. He didn't mean for fleas. You can't thank God for a flea. Nobody can thank God for a flea. And Betsy said, that's what he said to do. We don't have to like it. We just have to thank him for them. And so she tried. I'm going to thank God for these fleas. Because that's where he's put us. He's put us in a place with fleas. So he must mean for us to have these fleas for now. So she thanked God for it. And it turns out after a time where more and more of them grew in their faith, they had unencumbered time together in the barracks because the guards would not bother them. It turns out afterwards that the guards and the people in charge of the camp would not come into the barracks because they were afraid of contagion. Them dang fleas kept them away. They got to at least live unbothered, untortured by the guards, unhumiliated by the guards, and to be able to grow in faith in this miserable circumstance because of these fleas for which they thanked God. If God is up to something all the time, he begins good works, he carries them on to completion. The earth is his renovation project, as is your husband, as is your mom, as is your next door neighbor and your cube mate who doesn't pull their weight. Then you can be thankful even for the fleas in your life. You can make it a practice. And you know what you can also do? One of the surest signs of growing and abounding love is what the Apostle Paul is demonstrating, even by telling the Philippians how happy he is about them, is you can learn to be happy for other people. You can practice it. See, a lot of this stuff is a practice, not like necessarily like practicing your serve or practicing pitching a baseball, but practicing like a lawyer or a doctor practices their skill. This is an umbrella under which you live your life. And if your aspiration is to have an abounding love that affects everything, then one of the things you can do is say, my love means I need to be happy for what God does in other people's lives. Because what happens to us normally? When good stuff happens to other people, what happens to you? Do you have a party at home? Yay! The next door neighbor got a new car! Awesome! Yours won't start. This is fantastic! What? You make how much money now? Oh, that's fantastic! What? You you can eat whatever you want and you've never gained a pound since you were seven? That's great! Happy are you? And you go home and you hit a pillow and you scream into it. And you start singing blues songs. Lord, why must it have been raining the day I was born? 
You see, one of the ways that, one of the things that afflicts us most, is why Facebook is ruining you and social media, is because we are so filled with self-love, and anytime anything happens to somebody else, we don't think, congratulations, wow, look what God's up to in their lives. This is so fantastic. We're so, we have so much inner self-love directed at us. Their happinesses feel like an insult and a slam to us. Why did God do good to them and not to me? Of course, you're, the good he's done to you is generally hidden from you. You can't see it so good. You've got to make a habit of trying to see it. But one of the ways you do it is you just get to know, I do not have an obligation to think about myself all the time. I am held in the affection of Jesus Christ, and I can be happy for other people. Think. Thank. Listen. If you're starting to abound in love and it's starting to affect everything about you, it'll affect your ears. And this will be a really quick point. One of the things that most, especially for religious people who have convictions, who have strength of dissitude and they want the right things to happen, they want God's word to be obeyed and honored, it becomes us sometimes, or it is the way we are sometimes, that we just don't listen to other people very well. We don't receive them as God's project, as God's workmanship, as someone in whom God has an interest. We see them as someone for us to do our theology on. Flannery O'Connor has said that conviction without experience makes for harshness. A lot of us have a lot of conviction that we spew on people in very damaging ways. But Bonhoeffer tells us that God shows his love for us not only by giving us his word, but by extending and lending to us his ear. One of the ways that your love would abound for others in knowledge and depth of insight is to understand them. I guarantee you this, anybody who's part of a class of people that you think by nature you're against and opposed to, I guarantee you, anybody who drives you crazy, Anybody who's mean to you in ways that you can't fathom, I guarantee you, if you heard their story and fully suspending your own reactions and letting them influence you, you'd think differently. And you see, when people are understood, they feel loved. And when people are loved, they generally feel understood. That's how Paul Tournier put it. Listening is a very powerful thing. Most people, one author said, are just engaged in a dialogue of the deaf. That's why most marriages aren't going very well. It's just two deaf people yelling at each other or saying the same thing to each other over and over and over again. They're not letting each other affect them. Democrats and Republicans are like this. Nations are like this. A dialogue of the deaf. But we've been given hearing, the hearing of Jesus and the mind of Jesus so we can take others into ourselves. Do you want to practice? Practice listening to your kids. You ever listen to a six-year-old tell a story for 22 hours straight? (laughs) Try it. We teach our kids and we teach other people they're valued by valuing them, says Scott Peck. And one of the great gifts we have in valuing somebody is saying, you're so important that what you say matters, so I'm going to give you my undivided attention. You may be like me, I can sit there and be reading, Kathy can say something to me. You're not even listening to me, she might say. And I can say, oh, yes, I can. And then like a tape recorder, I can hit play and recite what was just said. But I have no idea what was just said. I have a good memory. I just can repeat it back. But I didn't let it influence me. I didn't let it come in. 
Because you can't do anything else and listen to someone else. That's what's so powerful about listening. You can't be doing anything else if you're really going to listen to someone. That's abounding love. To give someone else your undivided attention and letting them affect you. Letting yourself understand them. Think, thank, listen, and lastly, act. I want you to be able to be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Abounding love is going to bear fruit. It's very easy in our day because we think of love as a very sentimental thing. It's only an emotional thing. As C.S. Lewis has said, we can think ourselves really kind and loving when really we're just unbothered. You ever sit around in a room and feel touched by a story and think, what a delightful person I am. And then you meet an actual person and you want to hit them in the nose. One guy said, you know, there are many drunk guys sitting at a bar with tears in their eyes telling a bartender, oh, I love my family so much. Because when you inspect your emotions, it's easy. There are a lot of neglected children. There are a lot of neglected spouses. There are a lot of neglected people in the world to whom we can feel in our hearts because we thought about them. We look at our own emotions and we say, oh, I love them so much. But if their love doesn't translate into any kind of action, that's unidentifiable. They don't know about it. And you're just fooling yourself. You're just fooling yourself. Love is an affair of the will. It's something that you decide and act and do, but you never do it by yourself. Willard, who we close with this, who told us about giving him heaven, a lady came to interview him one day. He's always talking about how the life of the heavens is available to us now. That's part of understanding the kingdom. And she says, well, what do you mean by the availability of the kingdom of God here among us now? And he says, well, let's just say I'm a plumber and I'm going to clean out someone's sewer, you stay attentive to what you're doing at the moment. And you say, how would I do this as Jesus would do this? And then if you encounter difficulties with people that you're serving or with the pipe or with the machinery you're working with, you never fight the battle alone. You invoke the presence of God and you expect to see something happen that is not the result of you. This is what the great resource of the Christian life is. You don't have to repress. You don't have to have a lot of Irish whiskey. You don't have to be a rugged Marlboro manish named Jack Taylor. You invoke the presence of God. You expect to see something happening that is not the result of you. Are you not able to love somebody like your spouse or your kids or your mom or your coach or your teacher or your neighbor? That's why Paul prays that it will happen, that you'll be filled with a fruit of another. Not that you'll generate it, but that the life of another in you will create something out of you that is not the result of you. That's pretty magnificent. That's a benefit of the resurrection, a practical one in this waltz, this insightful love waltz. Will you make it your aspiration to let your love get on everything? Let the affection of Jesus Christ spur you on to love others, to make it your daily prayer that your love would abound and make that a prayer for even your enemies. And then think about it and thank God for others and listen and then act expecting God to do something 
that is not the result of you. I call you today to insightful love, to give them heaven. Let's pray.